Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction of today's guest speaker, allow me to paraphrase from the popular British World War I song, It's a Long Way to Tipperary. Up to mighty London, or dare, dare I say Vancouver, came an Irish lad. The streets, of, uh, streets were paved with gold and everyone was glad. That pretty much sums up the impact that John Furlong, CEO of the Vancouver Organizing Committee, for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games has had, not only on the West Coast, but in cities, towns, and hamlets across our country. I hope you'll agree that under Mr. Furlong's leadership, our collective spirits were lifted, but not just for those 17 magical days last February. The energy harnessed from that incredibly successful Winter Games has sustained our spirits and drawn us closer together as a nation. Mr. Furlong, an immigrant from Tipperary, Ireland, landed in Alberta 37 years ago and kept going west. He had long established himself as an athlete and sports leader on the west coast before his Vanuck role propelled him into the national and international spotlight. A former Canadian squash champion, Mr. Furlong has been a member of the Canadian Olympic Committee chaired the BC Summer and Winter Games and Sport BC, and founded the Northern BC Winter Games Society. The accomplishment that has made him a national household name is his adept handling of a multi-billion dollar winter athletic spectacle that dazzled visitors, broke records, set new standards, and injected newfound pride in the citizenry. His efforts, talent, and expertise have been duly rewarded, as they will, here again today. He's been named Canada's Sport Executive of the Year for his contribution to the Vancouver 2010 bid and named Vancouver's Executive of the Year by the Vancouver Executive Association. Mr. Furlong was selected as Canada's Marketer of the Year by the Canadian Marketing Association. In 2009, the Globe and Mail voted him Canada's most influential sport figure and this past December, the same newspaper bestowed upon him the title of Nation Builder for 2010. We are filled with pride and gratitude to have this sport and cultural champion with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in inviting John Furlong to our podium this afternoon. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to, uh, to react to that. I, it's a, an incredible honour to, to be here and I've seen this stage on television a few times, never been here before and it's a wonderful honour to be here and, and I've, I have to say and I don't know any other way to express it than, you know, after the games ended, um, I think many people thought it would sort of slip away fairly quickly but it hasn't. Something has happened and I've been uh, lucky enough to be recognized on, on a number of occasions, but the fact and the truth is that that recognition has come to me because uh, other people did heroic things, and very heroic things. And I was proud and privileged uh, uh, to lead them and be part of this project, which was a wonderful honor to be part of. Um, you know, I, I, would, I would do it again a thousand times, but only in Canada. And it was a, a great experience, and, uh, and I would say to all of you in the room 
whether you're an athlete, uh, whether you're uh, a partner or whatever role you might have played, even if it was just taking up a, a bun and throwing it at the television when someone scored a goal on us, thank you for the contribution that you made to the prevailing spirit in the country that, that we saw during the Olympic Games, from which I chose the title for the book, Patriot Hearts. I thought the title was a title I wanted to try somehow to recognize and show that we saw it. And we recognized that the people of the country became the difference makers. They took to the streets in the best way they could, and they embraced this spirit, and they gave the world a chance to see our country on its own terms. It wasn't a story about geography and big cities and iconic imagery. Um, it was a story about hu human beings and people uh, led by a great a Canadian Olympic team, which I think is the best athletic franchise we have in our country and is the one that's responsible for talking directly to our children and leading them to careers in sport and leading them to careers of becoming great citizens and great leaders in our country. I'm very honored to be here with some of our partners, uh, RBC and HBC, and thank them for uh, the contribution that they made to the Olympics. Uh, the things that they did were marvelous and magical, and I, we, I could be thanking them forever, and it would never be enough. And I want to thank... Um, I want to thank uh, Minister Lunn for his support of us and the Olympic team and for being a, a champion for this program we call Own the Podium, which lifted us to a place where we could legitimately take on the world and which was the sole reason why we were standing there in that arena on the last day chasing the 14th gold medal, which was a record for any country, home or away, ever at the Olympic Games. And if you say it quickly, it sounds like nothing. But it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And uh, I thank him uh, for that and, and say also that at the end of the Games, when the government of Canada came out and when a lot of people thought that some of this funding would go away and said, we need to see this for what it was, build on it and recognize that sport at this level, achievements at this level, are in our national interest. And here we have today a, a fantastic commitment from the government, great leadership, and, uh, and I think the athletes, summer and winter, feel like the country cares about what they're doing. And we're giving our, our, our kids a fighting chance to go into these competitions and compete with the best of the world and feel like they can win. Uh, <clears throat> I want, I want to thank Mrs. Harper uh, for being a spectacularly great fan and for to, she and her husband came to Vancouver and I can't even begin to calculate the value they brought to the Olympics. They were like Waldo. They were everywhere <laughs> and anywhere and in the front row and leading the cheers and I think was, were a fantastic example of what, what you would hope for from a leading couple during an event like this. Uh, just watching them and watching the glow and the way they cheered and they felt the pain and the anguish and everything everyone else was feeling and it was very special and it gave us uh, a great sense that if the people that run our country believe so much in this, they're saying by their attendance that this matters and is meaningful and it's necessary that we do it well. I want to thank also CTV and Rogers for taking the story that we were trying to tell, bringing it to life and sending it to every home in the country. When we were finished, 99.1% of Canadians saw some of the Olympic Games on television, and it was very special. And without them, we would have not have had anything like uh, the result that we had. I see Lisa Laflamme here, and 
and I had the privilege of flying home from uh, Greece uh, with her with the Olympic flame. If you could have seen this little Olympic flame and it was strapped into a seat, like <laughs> it was the only thing flying on that plane that was in first class. And, and somehow, skilled reporter that she is, she convinced us that it was time to break out the champagne and celebrate our good fortune to be going home. And she decided to ask me to sing or lead off the crew on the plane in O Canada. And I did, and she had a camera on. She took pictures. She realized I don't have a note in my head, and then she put it on television. <laughs> and, she's, and she's continued to do it. You cannot trust that woman. I'm just telling you, stay away from her. But we had a fantastic experience uh, with the media and the storytellers, and they really gave us a chance to show that the vision that we had really could be brought to life. I've been asked, I think, a thousand times this year about, you know, how did you pull it off? And as much as that 50,000 people came to the start line and, and did what they did, um, really, there was a reason, and it'll sound fairly simple. We believed profoundly in the vision we had, in that vision that we could take the Olympic spirit and walk it right through the front door of every home in Canada and have it spoken about and talked about at the kitchen table so that every Canadian life could be touched by what we were doing. And so that was our vision. And many people at the time were playing violins in the corner and thinking, you know, this isn't going to work. Canada is too big. This is not Luxembourg. This is Canada, six and a half times the size of Europe. It's like trying to take the Olympic flame from Lisbon and Portugal and going right past Siberia with it. And so it was a big thing to try to do. But it was a worthy thing to try to do because, you know, our feeling was if we don't try to share it with every Canadian, we will regret this our whole life, our whole lives. And so we did. And all of the provinces came on side and our partners came together from across the country. And then we took the torch relay and we, we would try to weave this silver thread around the country and share this remarkable spirit with people. And Canadians took up the invitation and were alive everywhere we went. And it seemed to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when we got to Vancouver, we had this most marvelous feeling that it was working, that the country was doing something together. And they just weren't cheering. They were living this. They were living it. And, uh, and so it felt incredibly special to us because of it. And it, it goes to show that if you have a vision that's capable of pushing you out of bed in the morning, it can take you anywhere that you want to go. We were going to be 50,000 people at the start line. We knew that we would be huge and we would, we would, large, we would not have much opportunity to be face-to-face -face with these people on a day-to-day -day basis. So we try to instill in all of them a set of core values about how we would do this work, how we would behave. And those values were teamwork, trust, excellence, creativity, and sustainability, which we translated to mean do what's right every day, no matter what. No one could come to the organizing committee team and not believe in those values. You had to do a values test. So we built this culture this way. And I tried in the book to show the value of this, this, this idea of infecting the organization with this great and wonderful spirit. And it was a great experience. And everything really comes back to that, having these values. We had every kind of adversity you could imagine all the way through, but somehow we, this, this code we had allowed us to focus 
and get ourselves through. And it was most evident when the economy went over a cliff and everyone in the country was struggling. And we needed every one of those people to fight hard and to find new and creative ways to deliver the games because we knew that the Canadian public wouldn't accept anything less than a stellar performance and finishing the games with a balanced budget, which is what we were able to do. So that was really the story of how we put it together. And when the games were over, and we were all sort of walking around in a, in a, in a, in, in a sort of a, I was feeling dizzy for days. I had this phone call from this publisher in Vancouver who's, who, who asked me to come and have breakfast with him, and I sat down with Scott McIntyre, and he said, you know, the country has changed. Someone needs to write about this. Well, I would never have said this. I just, it wasn't in me to say it, but to hear it was quite flattering, and I thought, you know, Maybe, maybe this is worth writing about. And so I sat down and thought about it, and I phoned Gary Mason from the Globe and Mail, and we talked about the idea of trying to tell this story in a way that it should be told. So we set out to do a number of things. One is to tell the story the way it happened, not uh, in, and try to do it um, in a way that if you were reading this book, that you would feel the experiences as we were feeling them. Not to really uh, to judge anybody, but to simply say, if you do something like this, this is how difficult it is. This is what it feels like every day. And off we went. And it was quite the experience. I didn't believe I had a book in me, but it was a lot of fun. And it was quite uh, liberating uh, to do it. And I tried very hard to tell an honest story, and I'm sure other people would have viewed all of this and seen it perhaps differently uh, than I did. Uh, but I tried to do it in a way that someone could read it and maybe learn something to do or not to do, but to feel what it was that we were living through. And because all through this, the only thing we really wanted was to make you all proud, to make you all feel that we were an extension of you and that we were acting in your interest and that someday we would all get to come together and perform together in, when the games would be delivered. So it was quite emotional. And so in the book, there's a lot of stuff in there you wouldn't have heard of before, and some of it's embarrassing, some of it's interesting and exciting, and some of it is probably a bit controversial. And I was trying to think about the things I would share with you because probably haven't read it yet, but. One of the things that just struck me while I was sitting here that I should talk about, when we were bidding for the games, it was a monster difficult challenge. No one wanted us to win except us. And you know, we, we, used, to, we used to think in Vancouver, well, everybody's going to vote for us, surely. Have you been to Vancouver? It's beautiful. Well, the people in Salzburg and Pyeongchang and Harbin, China, they thought they were better than we were, and so we were up against formidable opponents, and it was quite difficult. So we decided we're going to go flat out to win, and we, tr we went everywhere. We tried everything we could, and our strategy was to be loved and trusted. That's it. We thought nobody would suggest that Canadians couldn't do it, but would they trust us? Would we be their best partner? And after a three-week road trip, and it was getting close to having to go back to Vancouver and do our laundry, we were traveling through the mountains in Switzerland to an event in San Moritz, which had hosted the Olympics twice. And we landed at this little town that I'd never been to before. And, and we checked into a hotel that had maybe 20 rooms, very old hotel that was built for the Olympics the last time it was there. And we checked in and got into the room. The room was tiny. You could almost reach the walls like this. And got into bed, fell asleep in about 10 seconds, and woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and honestly did not know where I was, not a clue. I mean, really, not an idea. And I was terrified. And I sat up in the bed, and I thought, where are you? And 
I went to the door and I looked out, still not a clue. I'm in my pajamas, a t-shirt and pajamas that were 23 days in. And so I was, you know, quite worried. And I mean, what were you supposed to think? And so I went down the stairs. It was, I was on the second floor and I got into the lobby. There's no one in the lobby. So, okay, still not getting anywhere. Walked outside and it was cold, minus 15 in my bare feet. Not a clue. And I walked along the sidewalk there, and, I, and after two stores up from the hotel, there was a little confectionery shop, and in the window there were cakes that looked like bobsleds and curling rocks. <laughs> San Moritz. We're in San Moritz. And honestly, I felt as dumb and stupid as you could be. And I realized it's time to have a sleep. And, and I, I went home. Now, I'm not sure anybody would write about this in their book, but I wrote about it because... I thought it was sort of a bit of an example of how hard we had to work to try to uh, get to the finish line. When I think about the games, and lots of people have given us great credit for, you know, for a lot of the things that we did, we realized that this discussion we had with Canada uh, five years before the games about the idea of OTP, we realized that this was really the jewel. And we knew that None of you would care whether we got the buses to Worcester on time or whether the media tent was warm or cold or the food in the media tent was good or bad. It was, you, would, you wanted to see the athletes come across the finish line and you wanted to hear all Canada. So we made this investment thinking that if this team was great, that it would give us all a, 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 this, this opportunity to cheer and, and feel good. And so off we went. And we made this investment and Corporate Canada and our partners are here who made investments in the program and we put that money into the team and try to get them to a place that they could go toe-to-toe with the best in the world. And really it was they that gave us the glow. It gave, us, it, it gave everyone a reason to participate and share. And of course, uh, when Alexander Bilodeau nailed that jump and got the first gold medal and that monkey was off our back that we hadn't won a medal at home ever, we were on our way. And, and so, and the public was, were took to the streets and people were enjoying this and feeling like something profound was going on. So as the games evolved and we were getting closer to the finish line and at first people were saying we weren't performing that well when we thought we were performing quite well and then suddenly we were in this place where we could possibly hit this record number. So we had hit 13 and it's the last day of the games. So that morning on the last day of the games, you know, I'm of the view we're winning that gold medal no matter what. The laws of natural justice are going to prevail and we are going to win it. And there's no human being alive that could have convinced me we wouldn't. And it just was not something a person like me could accept. So we went to the stadium and the atmosphere in the stadium was outrageous. I mean, it was something like, it was like a 747 was revving up its engines and you couldn't hear. And it was crazy and every person in the country, 26.9 million of us anyway, were watching all of this and the game started. And I had an earpiece here and a phone in the other ear and a pad and we had an opening ceremony, our closing ceremonies coming and a lot going on, as you can imagine. And all I wanted to hear or see was the green light go on, get a goal. I couldn't have told you who scored the goal, it's just we got one. Feeling a lot more comforted by this. And we got another one. Feeling really good now. And I think this is in the bag. Start thinking about the closing ceremonies. And then suddenly, of course, the Americans scored. And it kind of got a little tense. And, and it was, uh, people were beginning to shift in their seats and worry. And, but I thought we're going to be okay. And then, of course, 24 seconds to go. 
uh, we see this goal. But just before this, I'm sitting with René Fazel and the president of International Ice Hockey and, and Jacques Rogue, and René Fazel turns to me and he said, you know, John, what this game needs is another goal. <laughs> and I am looking at him and thinking, what? And he said, no, no, another goal would be great now because you see, this is what will happen. The, the Americans will get a goal, we go into overtime, go right through overtime. We'll get into a shootout. Can you imagine the ratings? <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know, Renee, bugger the ratings. Who cares? <laughs> and so I just can't believe he's thinking like this. And so, of course, the Americans score at 24 seconds, and our prime minister led off a different kind of wave in the stadium, <laughs> which was this. <laughs> and, we, and we all followed him. Everyone felt this. We were mortified about this goal, but... I still thought, doesn't matter. We're getting that goal, and that's the way it's going to be. So I didn't leave my seat, and people were anxious, and there was a thousand debates about who would get the goal and at what point it would come, and so on and so forth. So we get into this overtime period, and three or four minutes in, the puck is flicked at Luongo and the other, at our end, and Luongo chested it down into the back. And I look over to René Fazel. And he has this big grin on his face, like the world is unfolding as it should. And I shamelessly put my hand in my pocket, and I took out my pen, and I said, you know, Renee, if they score, I'm going to stab you through the heart with this pen. <laughs> it's in the book, so it happened. So it was quite, um, it was quite a, um, a, a thing to be there for that. And then, of course, when, when, when Crosby scored the goal, why I believe this goal has lingered on and is so special is that every Canadian feels like they got a stick on that puck. They were living there. They were on the ice. And Scott Niedermeyer confirmed this after the games when he said, you know, we knew this was no longer about hockey. We knew that the country expected us to take the games to that last place, that we were going to leave something profound behind if we got this goal. And yes, we'd have a 14th medal, but we would have changed the way the country feels about itself. There would be this new and very special confidence around. And so, of course, I think that's, that all of that momentum was playing out for us. I tried in the book to describe the heroics of the people in blue jackets who came from everywhere. We had um, 4,500 men and women who spoke French who came to Vancouver to help us deliver on our commitments. We had people who came by bus from Ontario. We had people who slept in their cars, who slept in their floors. We had people who were terminally ill who came to work because they wanted to be able to say, when Canada asked, I was here and I made my, my contribution. So it was amazing and this spirit prevailed the best on Cypress Mountain when after all of the testing and all of the planning and all of the technology going into January of 2010 said, you will have plenty of snow, and we had none. And we had to invent a solution on that mountain that was inhuman, and those volunteers lived up there without going home for all of those weeks of January and February because they would not allow uh, us to be that, that organizing committee that had failed to deliver an event at the Olympic Games. Four or five days after they started into this strategy of hauling snow from 100 kilometers away and trying to shape the mountain and bringing in bales of hay to shore up the sides of the hill so the snow wouldn't slip off when it was warm, uh, one, of the, one of the fellows running the, the main crew up there got off his truck and came over to me and he said, John, stop coming up here. We will not let this country down. This is going to get done. I promise you it's going to get done. Go and do something that's more important than coming up here and cheering for us. And that was the prevailing spirit that we had. And then out on the road with the torch relay, I don't know if you know this, but when the relay was being planned, 
the, the, the objective was go everywhere. Again, it's Canada. Go everywhere in 106 days is a tall order. So they would come up to my office with this plan and say, we're going to go here and here and here. And I was just looking at the places they couldn't get to and saying, you must get to these communities. I don't have the courage to phone those mayors and say we're not coming. And I would hear them go down the hall and say that that guy's going to kill us. <laughs> but if, they were, if the fellow who ran the relay was standing here, he'd say he's the proudest guy in the country to be able to say that they did go for 106 days in a row and, and delivered on that promise of letting every Canadian in and to be part of the torch relay. I had the privilege uh, in my career to have spent very good time with three, three prime ministers. Um, a long time ago, when I was young and naive, and when I came to Canada, I was involved in a thing called the Northern Games, and I found myself in a room with Pierre Trudeau, and I was supposed to brief him so he could make a speech. And when he walked in the room, and it was just he and me, I was so scared, I, I was like I could hardly get the words out. And I talked to him for an hour, and he had this halo around him, and, and when I was finished, when I was finished, we went downstairs and he walked up onto the stage and he spoke for an hour to the people of Prince George with such incredible passion and eloquence. And I, he, he taught me how to get up in front of a microphone and let your heart talk for you, to speak your mind and to don't say it if you don't feel it and don't say it if you don't mean it. And it was a fantastic lesson about how to be in a room and to talk to people and I've never forgotten it. And then, you know, a couple of days before we went to Prague, um, had the experience with, with Prime Minister Chrétien, where for him to get to Prague, he had to fly at the 11th hour because Canada Day was the day before. He slept on the floor of the plane, got off the plane in Prague, had a half hour to change, came to, uh, to the hall to deliver his speech and stood up there and gave the commitment of Canada uh, to, to the IOC and gave his word, that his word, that the team that was here to present Canada's credentials could be trusted. Couldn't have been better. We were off to such a great start. And then I had wonderful experiences with Prime Minister Harper where he took the time uh, to give me personal advice about dealing with the challenges that I was facing, but who gave us a magnificent finish by showing up and being everywhere and, rec and having the country see that this mattered, that what we were doing was important and that it was for everyone. And I, for, for me, it, it couldn't have been any better. And I thought we were so lucky in our country that we can get so close to the people that lead us. And for me, it, it, it couldn't have been any, any better than it was. At the end of the games, you know, I mean, there were many things and many lessons, and we don't have the time to talk about them all. But at the end of the games, um, I got an invitation to go to Georgia to the funeral of of, um, of Nodar Kumar Atashvili. And we had to change the closing ceremonies so I could go. And I wanted to go, and I wasn't really sure what it would be like uh, going there. And so in order to get there, I had to catch a helicopter ride from Whistler from behind the, the stadium that we were closing the games down in, uh, get to Vancouver to catch the last flight to Europe to get to Georgia. It was a two-day trip to get to Bakrohani in the mountains of Georgia a village that f looks like it's 100 years ago. We got there and went to his home and, and uh, met his family, hugged his father and mother, 
went up a ladder at the back of his house to his room and sat on his bed and saw this wonderful picture of him on the wall above his bed of him holding our Olympic torch in Whistler, full of dreams and hopes, and, and then meeting the people of the village and going down to this funeral service that they had and realizing the struggles that people have in other parts of the world, how hard they have to fight just to survive and how they come together and help each other and the magnificent reception uh, they gave us and how thoughtful they were and grateful that we had, we had come. And, and I remember um, when it was finished and, and leaving, um, it felt like we were leaving family. We got into the car and we were driving down from the mountains and you could see Bakarani and the, and the lights behind us as we were heading back to Tbilisi to, to fly home. And thinking, my colleague Rene Smith-Vallad, who had come with me, and I remember looking over and saying to her, you know, we are so lucky to be able to put the word Canadian behind our name, to say that we live here, that this is our country, that we live in a country that has so much, that has given us so much. And you know, I have to say that I don't believe, I have an Irish accent, I know it's not as profound as it was, but I have an Irish accent, and I don't believe that there's any other country in the world where a person with my accent could be given a job like this, to be given an opportunity like this. We don't have this kind of talk in Canada. In Canada, it's about, you know, we're all in this together, and through all of the years that I've done the work that I've done, no one has ever referred to me as an Irishman. I've always referred to me as a Canadian, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud that to live in a country that behaves like this. It feels so uh, wonderful uh, to be part of that. And we agreed coming away that, you know, we don't say this enough to each other, that this country is so special. And what I hope has happened as a result of the Olympics is the world saw us the way we wanted to be seen, and they saw the great human enterprise that our country is, and that from now on, that as we go on in whatever endeavor, that people will look at us and say, you know, I'm with those Canadians. These people are special. When the games ended, lots of great things were said. The Prime Minister made profound comments about Canada's place in history, and my son phoned me the next day, and we were on our way to the airport to say goodbye to everybody. And he made the following comment. He said, you know, Dad, we grew up next door to a, to a giant. They were bigger than us, better than us in most things. They had all the money. They beat us in most things. They made all the movies. If they decided to go to a war, we went with them. If they decided on a particular thing they wanted others to do, we did it with them. And it was okay. The next generation will never feel this. The next generation will feel that we can go out into the world and com compete with anybody and be successful and feel like we belong. And if that was the only legacy from the games, I'd say the games did us a good service. If the games was able to get every person talking to themselves about the role they play in life, the role they play at home, at work, and at play, it would have, I think that legacy would be enough. We have a bigger one than that, but it would be enough. I'm incredibly honored to be standing here. In a thousand years, I never thought I would ever be in a situation like this to feel the, the pleasure of having been involved in this and to be recognized this way. And on behalf of the athletes who gave it everything they have and the 50,000 people, thank you for this great honor. It's, it was a magnificent privilege. I was shocked uh, to be told this, that we were going to be honored this way, but I'm incredibly grateful. And today is the day I realized that it did matter. Thank you for that.
That was fantastic. Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome Susan MacArthur, who was chair of the Canadian of the Year Award Committee, to say a few words. Well, John, I can say you made me proud. <laughs> it was a fantastic event. And I think all of us in this room felt the same way. So it was quite terrific. Um, Mr. Furlong Olympic, uh, Olympians and guests. So I just want to let everybody know this is an award we take very seriously at the Canadian Club. Each year we select a list of very well qualified nominees and they are put through a rigorous vetting process, not just by our board at the Canadian Club, but also by the Canadian of the Year Committee. And I would like to thank Alison Doglish-Pato, who was very instrumental this year on my committee, and also Lorreen Harper, who is also an honorary member of the committee. So we have uh, uh, given this award to a number of recipients in the past, and the criteria is really that you make a lasting impact on the lives of Canadians. And listening to John Furlong, I think it's quite clear that he made a lasting impact on the lives of Canadians. Past recipients for this award have included Supreme Court justices, accomplished entrepreneurs, pioneers of the arts, and members of our armed forces. It gives us great pleasure to add John Furlong, CEO of the Vanock Committee, and the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Games, and the Canadian Olympic effort, because it was the athletes and the volunteers as well, to add to our list of Canadian of the Year. So I would like to ask Nick Chambers, our president of the Canadian Club, and Alison Doglish-Pautot to come uh, to the podium and present the award to John Furlong and the Canadian Olympic effort. So, Mr. Furlong, on behalf of our guests this afternoon, I'd like to thank you for inspiring us with your words, thoughts, and deeds. You have proven how powerful the human spirit can be in overcoming diversity and tragedy. And in fact, my mom always told us kids, it's easy to have character when things are going well, but extremely difficult, and the true test of character is in the face of adversity. And I can tell you, you and your team, clearly showed true character and put on an incredible event for this country. Your unique, your unique style and thoughtful leadership have brought you newfound admirers, not just to yourself personally, but to the entire nation. For in you, many recognize those qualities that make Canada a coveted place to live. And I can only echo what you said about this great country, and I tell my kids as many times as possible that they're indeed lucky and blessed to live in this great country, Canada. It's true. So, uh, Mr. Furlong, we wish you continued success as you parlay your recent Olympic accomplishments into new ventures and experiences, and we thank you once again for joining us this afternoon.
Thank you all. Thank you very much, Susan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Furlong. Thank you, uh, Olympians and special guests, RBC, uh, Hudson's Bay Company, and Bell for making today possible. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that a copy or copies of Mr. Furlong's book, Patriot Hearts Inside the Olympics That Changed the World, are on sale in the registration area and that Mr. Furlong has uh, graciously agreed to sign copies. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV and, uh, and will play out over uh, the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing support of Canadian Club events. Ladies and gentlemen, this meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>